and, and good morning to you all. It is good to see everyone. We're in Mark chapter 8 this morning. For you men that are signed up and ready to go to the retreat, it is next weekend. So looking forward to spending some time with you all. We're not just in sessions the whole time. We're going to be uh, hanging out together, a lot of one-on-one time. It's going to be awesome opportunity uh, to hang together and fellowship in the Lord together. So don't like sign up, pay, and then forget to go. That would be bad. Mark chapter 8, as we wrapped up last time, it seemed like Jesus was a little bit frustrated with the disciples' inability to fully grasp, to understand exactly what he was trying to teach them. There in that end of that barrage of questions he asked them, where we left off last time in verse 21, he ends by saying, how is it that you do not understand? And so today we're going to have a little journey in understanding. Up until now, it seems that Jesus is perfectly content to take his disciples only so far, to get them to understand that he is God. Well, that much they get. They get that much. They tend to forget, as we've seen. Remember, they're going to go across the Sea of Galilee. He falls asleep on that boat. And they're like, Master, how could you be sleeping when we're perishing? Didn't I tell you that we're going to go across the sea? They forget, you know, nothing to worry about. Again, last week as well, they're faced with the impossible task of feeding all of those people, the 4,000 out in the wilderness. How are we going to do this? Well, remember just a few months ago, there was a feeding of the 5,000. So, so they get it, but they forget it every once in a while. But they know, they know he's God. They know that who he claims to be, he is. Who else could raise people from the dead, calm the storm, heal the sick, feed the multitudes with a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread? It's obviously God. It's obviously the Messiah, but now what he wants to do with them is to break things down, get into more specifics with them so that really understand what it is that Jesus is claiming to be. Because here we are now at this point, again, chronologically headed close here to the cross. Even though we're just in the middle of the book, Mark spends a lot of time in the last couple of weeks of Jesus's life. So we are probably, give or take, about six months away from the cross. And Jesus really wants his disciples to be prepared for what they were going to face in Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed, not just by Judas Iscariot, of course, but by the whole nation, that he would be betrayed, that he would go to the cross, that he would die on that cross, and that he would resurrect from that cross. But then, you know, shortly after the resurrection, you know, is the ascension, meaning that he would leave them behind on their own. He would send his Holy Spirit to guide them and direct them, but essentially they would be entrusted, God working through them, of course, but they would be entrusted with building up the kingdom. And so he wants them to understand not just that he is God, not just that he is the Messiah, but what that means, what a claim of him being Messiah really meant. And we're going to see that they didn't understand that part of it. So Not just that he's God, but that he's Messiah, what that meant, and then the implications for him being the Messiah in the life of a disciple, both them and us. And, you know, so what we are going to see here is we already know, we know his identity. Um, We're going to see here that he's going to reveal to them 
his destiny and then as a result what our responsibility is here's a passage there are a lot of passages you could google uh, verses on discipleship and you could find all kinds of verses all kinds of ideas and thoughts that people have about discipleship but this might be one of the better passages to take kind of a, a small chunk of verses and really define what discipleship looks like because he wants them to get that. They're still a little fuzzy on that. They, they need some clarity. And maybe you and I do too a little bit. So maybe we knew and we know his identity. Maybe before even this morning you came here, you knew you know, what his destiny was, that he was going to go to the cross, that he was going to resurrect. But maybe sometimes we don't always understand, we don't always know exactly uh, what it is that our responsibility is as believers, as disciples, as students of Christ, to take those things that he's taught us, what is it that a disciple looks like in our own lives? We begin with yet another miracle that seemingly is out of place in terms of trying to connect the dots between this lesson of the feeding of the 4,000 and discipleship and him bridging this. It's seemingly out of place. Now, it could have just been, again, chronologically what happened next. And that may be the case. I don't purport to know what the Holy Spirit is doing here, but in looking at this miracle a couple times, I actually think that it flows quite well with the lesson that we have this morning. It's kind of eye-opening, uh, no pun intended. Verse 22, Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. Again, six months ago, everything is becoming more private. It's not about the crowds anymore, and for good reason, and we're going to talk about that, but bookmark that in your mind. It says, and when he had spit on his eyes. Now, you know all why he did that, right? You know why he spit on his eyes? I don't, but maybe you do. I have no idea why he did that. He spit on his eyes, and he's put his hand on him, and he asked him if he saw anything. And this man, it says, he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. So those of you who need glasses, you know exactly what this man is experiencing at this point in time. Now, what's going on here? Is the Messiah juice running a little low this morning? I mean, what's the problem here? Why is he seeing things blurry um, did he not do it right? Wait a minute. Did I, was I supposed to spit on the ground and then touch his eyes? I mean, am I off on this a little bit? No. This is on purpose. Verse 25, then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now, this is a fascinating and unique example in scripture for us of a gradual healing. I think it's why it's here. I think we have the sense sometimes that all miracles have to be instant, poof, you know, just right away or else they're not a miracle. But a miracle that requires time or some kind of progression is still a miracle. Here is a man who goes from no sight to kind of blurred vision to seeing clearly. And interestingly enough, when you add to that, that seeing in the Bible is often synonymous with understanding, and here we are on our journey of understanding here this morning, the cool thing about this miracle is that the Lord allows this man to see over time, albeit it was in a short span 
of time, but it's a picture for us, a microcosm of what he does in the life of a disciple, that he allows us to see our vision, our understanding of the things of God become more clear as time goes along. Our salvation comes in an instant, but our discipleship is a process. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I am also known. And so as the Lord does in this man's life, literally, as the Lord is doing in this chapter for the disciples, he does in our lives personally, kind of slowly but surely, taking us through a process where we begin to see things from his perspective more clearly over time. And what is it that he wants us to see? What is it that's the clarity that he wants to provide for us? And that is what it looks like, what discipleship looks like, what following Jesus Christ really means. A disciple is a student or a learner of a master. It's not enough just to be a student, it's to be a student of a master. Now, in order to be a student or a learner of our master, Jesus Christ, we must know who he is, what he's all about. And that's the specific breakdown, I think, that takes place for most, quote, disciples in this world today. They miss out on understanding what discipleship is because we don't really fully understand who he is or what he came to do. And that is what he makes so clear to the disciples here in this passage. He begins to kind of provide clarity, to clear things up just a little bit for them. It says, verse 27, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? What are the reports out there? What do the people think? What do the polls say about me? You know, what are the people saying that I am? And they respond here. So they answered, verse 28, said John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And Matthew they threw in Jeremiah too. So some say you're John the Baptist, uh, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, others just say that you're one of the prophets. There are a lot of opinions about Jesus in that day. There are a lot of opinions about Jesus today. We could go down to the beach together this morning and we could ask people, what do you think about Jesus? And some would say, well, I don't even think he existed. You know, and some people would say, well, you know, he was a good moral teacher, I think. And others would say, well, you know, he was a poor guy that got caught up in a political scheme. Maybe some would say, well, I think he was a, a miracle worker and a prophet. And still others, maybe like you and I, would say, well, no, he's the son of God and he's the Messiah of God. But ultimately, ultimately, and here's the bottom line. And if you don't get anything else out of this morning, this is what you need to get. I want you to get more, but if you get nothing else. What people think about Jesus ultimately is irrelevant. What is relevant is what you say and what you think about Jesus. That's why Jesus asks this next question. Not because he didn't know, but because they needed to know and we need to know. He said to them, verse 29, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Notice that definite article, the Christ, because Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, right? You knew that. You already know that. Okay, good. Christ is a title. It means Messiah 
or Savior. That's what it is. You are the Messiah, Peter says. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus responds back to Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, it's not like Peter put one and one together and he figured it out. In fact, we're going to see in a little while. Maybe he knew or he was right in saying that he was the Messiah, but still his understanding of what the Messiah was was a little bit off at this point. So then verse 30, he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And again, this is one of those things where we go, why? Why does he say, don't tell? You're right, I'm the Messiah, keep it between us. Why does he do that? Now, there were times when he did that, say like in Mark chapter 3, there were demons falling before him, you're the son of God, and he said, don't tell anyone. Because he didn't want his demons doing his PR work. You can understand that. That was the wrong kind of person to be proclaiming the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, the demons. There was another time in Mark chapter 1 where he cleansed a leper and he said, don't go to the crowds, go to the priest. Because that way the priest would be ministered to first. Because nobody cleansed lepers. Lepers were never cleansed. And so hopefully that might reach a priest to go, whoa, could the Messiah be on the scene? In this particular instance, though, I think that it's none of that. I think it's back to we're six months away from the cross. And the crowd is becoming dangerously close to getting in the way of Jesus' mission. We know from John chapter 6, and I already told you about this a few weeks ago, but after the feeding of the 5,000, even before the feeding of the 4,000, that the crowd wanted to come and take Jesus by force to make him king. That's why he got his disciples out of there and on that boat right away. And it's why he departed alone on a mountain to pray, the Gospel of John tells us. You see, because he wasn't coming to be a king, right? Not the way that they thought. Here's part of the problem. If you read the Old Testament, you really study the prophecies concerning the Messiah. The Messiah is presented two different ways. The Messiah is presented both as a conquering type of king, but also as a suffering kind of servant. That's why many rabbis up until the time of Jesus started to believe and even teach that there were two Messiahs, even though the Bible clearly only speaks of one Messiah. Now, one Messiah, but get this, two different comings. One as a suffering servant who would take away the sins of the world for those that believe in him, and then later on someday, hopefully someday soon, again as a conquering king. Well, perhaps because of the Jewish Babylonian captivity, 580 or so BC, and then not long after, you know, a few hundred years later, now in Jesus' day, the Roman occupancy, the nation, the religious establishment is at a place where they are hungry. They are thirsting for a Messiah, but they want a Messiah like they had of old, like a Samson, you know. They want a deliverer. They want a political um, figure. They want a different kind of Messiah than the Messiah that was promised to them. It's a big mistake also that believers even can make 
Um, if they're not very familiar with the scriptures, if you don't study the Bible, you can kind of get into this habit where you sort of say, well, here's what my Jesus is. My God is like this. My God is this kind of person, you know. Instead of what the Bible says God is, we kind of define for ourselves. And that's what the nation had done. They said, here's what the Messiah is going to look like. We're going to take some of these out of context. We're going to remove Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And anything that references him suffering on our behalf or going to the cross or him being pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Let's remove all of that and let's just focus on all the things about Israel being the predominant world power. And that's what they wanted to believe. And so it's not really a reach at all to think that the disciples would have had a similar misunderstanding concerning what Jesus had come to do. And so here in verse 31 we have the first of three, if you will, announcements specifically in the Gospel of Mark that he's going to give to them concerning what he had come to do. In other words, what does Messiah mean? Are we going to rule? Are we going to set up a kingdom? Is he going to be the president of the world? And these guys are going to be like, you know, his congress or his chief of staff and that kind of thing. No, not at all. That's not what God had in mind, obviously, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. So we know Jesus did bring a kingdom, but he was not coming to be king, not king of the world, not king in the way that the Israelites, the disciples maybe also thought, not at least in this day, in this coming at this time. And that's how we know that even though Peter got the words right when he said, you are the Christ, what had come out of his mouth may have been technically correct, but Peter's not getting it. Because look at verse, end of verse 32, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You can only picture in your mind what this must have looked like. Kind of put your arm around God for a second and just, you know, I know you're the almighty, all-wise, all-knowing creator of the universe, but I'm going to have to disagree with you on this, okay? Um, you going and being rejected and being killed, that's not a good plan. Let's come up with a different plan. Verse 33, but when he turned around to look at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I just want you to know here that Jesus is not literally saying that Peter is Satan, okay? But he's speaking, talking on behalf as if he was. So he turns around here, Peter, one second, he gets the answer right, you're the Christ. Like the spiritual high point of his ministry, and then within the same scene, he experiences the spiritual low point of his ministry. Maybe that's happened to you before. I mean, you can just like, I'll be on cloud nine and then a minute later something happens and boom you're just brought back down to reality that's what happens here one minute a revelation from god the next minute he's used as a spokesman for satan shows you by the way that you don't have to be demon possessed you can be a follower of christ and still be a tool in the hands of satan if we're not careful how does that happen? Well, Jesus tells us how it can happen, and that's if we're mindful, not of the things of God, but we're mindful of the things of men. And to illustrate just how far these guys were from fully understanding Jesus' mission, 
to illustrate just how far these guys were from understanding what discipleship really was. To illustrate sometimes just how far this world and even some of us are at times from understanding what discipleship is. Here in verses 34 through 38, Jesus gives us several bullet points. Again, as good of a condensed section on discipleship as we're going to get. So only take notes here if you're interested in being a disciple. Verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, and here you go. If you underline, you circle anything right here, here you go. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, you go to church, you read your Bible, try to cut down on the cussing and drinking and that kind of thing, be nice to people, you know, maybe every once in a while serve, you know, instead of listening to the radio, pop in a Christian CD every once in a while. And none of those things are bad, but that's not what discipleship is. And Jesus here is showing us pretty clearly what it is. First of all, he says, if you want to come after him, if you want to follow him, if you want to be a disciple, you must deny yourself, deny your selfish nature, your self-will, so to speak. It is not, and I want to make this clear, it is not the denial of something in my life. I can deny myself a cupcake and be just as self-consumed as I've ever been in my life because I'm denying myself that cupcake only because, well, I want to fit into my clothes better or I want to look better. I can be self-consumed in denying myself of something. Now, that does not mean that to go ahead and eat the cupcake because that's denying myself of wanting to look good either. It is not about any one particular thing in your life. It's just denying yourself, and that's kind of the thing that's hard to kind of understand. It's denying your self-ambition, your goals, your pursuits, your dreams, what you want in the flesh. That's the old, not my will, but your will, thy will be done. Galatians 2 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So he needs to deny himself, the disciple does, needs to do. And then number two, he needs to take up his cross. I've heard people say things before like, you know, well, I'm married to this husband of mine. He's my cross to bear. No, that's, <laughs> that's not the idea. The cross to bear is not some irritation in my life. I think it's in part because we've come down throughout the 20 or so centuries since Christ lived to kind of clean up the cross, to sanitize it. It's become symbolic of goodness and purity and rightness and I'm okay because I'm wearing a cross around my neck kind of thing. But the disciples would have known what the cross meant. The cross was a symbol of death. The cross was the instrument by which Jesus died on. So when he says take up his cross, what he is saying here, you might say the cross is the complete submission to the Father's will at any cost. When a criminal in Rome at that time was sentenced and convicted, he would be forced to carry that cross from the place of his conviction to where he would carry out his death or the place of his execution. And so along the way, by carrying that cross, 
he would be communicating to everyone that I am now in submission to the authority of this government that I had previously rebelled against. And so similarly, in the life of a Christian, the exact same thing is true. By bearing that cross, what we are saying is that I am now in submission to the authority of the government, in this case, the government of God in my life, that I had previously been in rebellion against. And so from that vantage point, when Jesus says we got to carry our cross like him, it wasn't his sickness to bear, it wasn't his bum rap, it wasn't a tough plight in life that he had to endure, a couple bad breaks or something like that. The cross for Jesus was the instrument by which he sacrificed for other people in submission to the Father. So if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, what it really means to bear my cross means that my life cannot any longer be about me. My life needs to be about other people. Jesus lived his life. He was born and he lived and he designed everything to establish who he was so that he could go to the cross. And he says that the life of a disciple is to be the same. You know, it was a big moment in our nation's history. One of the lines everybody knows when JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I think similarly, it's a huge moment in the life of a disciple when I come to realize it's not about other people meeting my needs any longer. It's not about this church fulfilling me. It's not about my wife making me happy. But on the flip side, when I begin to say, how can I make my wife happy? How can I meet the needs of others around me? How can I make church more fulfilling for others that I get discipleship? And interestingly enough, when that happens in our lives, when that light bulb goes off in your head, when that clicks, all of a sudden, my wife does meet my needs. The church does meet my needs. Other people do meet my needs. Why? Because what I need is to be a servant. What I need is to lay down my life. What I need is to do what he would do, to be like him, to live for others. That's what a more fulfilling kind of life. It's not a sacrificial life for the sake of sacrifice. Oh, okay, well, God, you did it, so I'll do it too. No, it's a more fulfilling. You've been wired to lay down your life for others. You get more fulfillment when you lay down your life for others. And so whoever desires to come after Jesus, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he builds on that more in verse 35. He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. One of the great hindrances, I think, for you and me as disciples is my life, my emotions, my dreams, my pursuits, my, 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 my. And then the ability to, to um, compartmentalize, so to speak. You know, as to say, um, I'm a believer in Christ, or people think maybe they are and some aren't. But to say that I can just live exactly like the whole rest of the world does where I can make my chief goal, my, my end game be about my finances and my career and my investments and my success, the respect of other people, some kind of goal that's temporal in this lifetime to which Jesus here poses the following challenge and it is my favorite reality check in all of the Bible. 
And for believers and unbelievers alike, but I'll tell you what, it's a room of mostly believers here this morning, and I say you come back to this one again over and over and over because this is the reality check, I think, probably of our lives. Verse 36, I love this. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? One of the things that I love about that passage, that verse, is as powerful as any verse is in the Bible, is that Jesus could have stopped with, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Period. Or question mark. He could have stopped there. Because what's the answer to that? What is the profit in gaining the whole world? There isn't any. So then to add to that, but forfeit your soul in the process? In other words, what would you exchange for your soul? A billion dollars? I don't even think reasonable people would. Even unbelieving reasonable people. If you said, Look, I'll give you a billion, well, let's lower it, a million dollars. I'll give you a million dollars to sell your soul to the devil. Even reasonable people would be like, no, I'm not going to sell my soul to the devil for a million dollars. Reasonable people would not do that. Yet they give up their soul for far less than a million dollars because they don't want to go to church or they don't want to change their ways or they don't want to pray. They think it's a big sacrifice. And you say, what would you give up for your soul? What would you cling to in life that's so important that you would be willing to forfeit your soul? It's an argument from reason. You think about the Bible. Sometimes the Bible is like deep, you know, and sometimes it's paradoxical, like, you know, his ways are not our ways. And sometimes it's parabolic. And sometimes we're like, we've got to wrap our minds around this kind of thing. This is not. This is simple. This is straightforward. This is, listen, this life is temporary. And because you can't take it with you, then what's the point of pursuing the things of the world? You're not going to be able to keep all those things when it's all said and done. That's why, you know, when J.D. Rockefeller, as wealthy as he was when he died, that New York Times reporter asked, his estate attorney, how much money did he leave behind? And you know the response, the classic answer, he left all of it. He didn't get to take any of it with him. Because you could gain the whole world and ultimately you would profit nothing. So sometimes just take a field trip, go down to the junkyard, or have you ever been to one of those car demolition spots? There used to be one when we lived in the Pacific Northwest, right off the highway. You just see this demolition lot. And you're just like, every single one of those cars at one point was somebody's brand new toy that they were so excited about that they polished and cleaned and waxed and now is sitting in a pile of ruins. Or if you're like me, you could just go home this afternoon and walk through your garage. <laughs> Bunch of DVD players and books and golf clubs. It's all dusted off. Every once in a while we look for a bucket or a cooler or something. We're like, what's in there anymore? Just a bunch of wood, hay, and stubble, a bunch of junk. Solomon, perhaps, relatively speaking, the wealthiest man in the history of the world. How wealthy was Solomon? Well, you tell me. He's credited by secular historians with coming up with the iced drink. And he seems to allude to the fact that he drank iced drinks in the harvest, which would be the warm period in Israel. Now, you tell me how he did that, and you win the pink bunny this morning. How did Solomon 
drink iced drinks. Just try and think about it, chew on it just a little bit, and I don't know how he did that. That's how wealthy Solomon was. He had a team of guys climbing up some high mountain to bring him snow to put in his drink, the first snow cone as well. But he, in the book of Ecclesiastes, after living a life to try and find meaning and purpose apart from God, came to the following conclusion, there is no prophet under the sun. That is, on earth, in this lifetime. And he did everything you did times a thousand. He had it all. He went down every path, and he said there's no prophet in any of it. Some of the most miserable people I know, or that I know of, are people that are very wealthy or very successful. And the reason why that's the case is because they've experienced enough about life to realize there's nothing there, there. That success, there's nothing really there. That they've experienced the ultimate in life and the ultimate has let them down because there's nothing else left to accomplish and it didn't fulfill them. Never forget that 60 Minutes interview with the quarterback of the New England Patriots, Tom Brady, after winning a couple Super Bowls and a couple MVPs. And he's like, is that all there is? Is this all there is? There's got to be more. He's absolutely right. See, the difference between Tom Brady and virtually everybody in this room is that we can live under the delusion that if we would just pay off our mortgage, if we would just get a raise, or if we would just improve that relationship, or if we could just take care of this problem, then our life would be happy. But there are people like that who know they're at the top and they know it's not there. That's not where fulfillment is. That's not where happiness is. Solomon could have told you a couple thousand years before. He had it all and he said there was no profit under the sun. The Wall Street Journal of all resources, quote, years ago money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. The problem for so many people is they think in reality, even for a believer, well, I'd like to have Jesus and a Visa card with an unlimited uh, limit um, that I don't ever get billed for. I want Jesus and I want that as well. That's kind of, if we're honest with ourselves, we think that we want Jesus and this other kind of perfect life and to be respected by people and to have success in our field. I read this week about a primitive tribe many many years ago that had this culture in which they would establish a new king every seven years and that king was basically a dictator he could do whatever he wanted the catch was that they would kill that king off at the end of his reign to make way for the the tribe to embrace this new king and the interesting thing is is they had no shortage of men who would line up for that role, even though they knew they'd be sacrificing the rest of their life to reign for seven years. And similarly, that's exactly what the world does when they reject Christ's offer of salvation. They would rather reign now and gain the whole world and forfeit their soul later. I'll deal with the forfeiting my soul later. Right now, I want to reign now. And so we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised that someone would choose not to live for eternity, but live for this life, for this world. We shouldn't be surprised that people don't want to take up their cross, but instead they want to pursue their own desires, their own ambitions. And we shouldn't be surprised that people don't want to deny self, but instead they default 
to denying Christ, of which Jesus here provides pretty stern warning in our last verse. He says, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, and it hasn't changed, by the way, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I'm not so sure, and I'm not saying for sure, but I'm not so sure there is such a thing as closet Christians or secret saints. I'm not so sure. I hope there are. I want them all to go to heaven. But I'm not so sure, and I'd be remiss. I would not be doing my job as pastor if I was up here helping everyone feel good that they're going to heaven. Sometimes it's good for someone when they walk in to wonder based upon the way they're living their life if they really believe. And that's the check that Jesus is providing here. Now, he is not saying, he is not talking about an occasional lapse in courage. That is not what he's saying. You know, like where I failed to share my faith when he prompted me to, or I failed to speak up for him at work when there were a bunch of people around. That's happened to all of us, I'm sure. What he is talking about is someone who, in a very settled place in their heart, they have decided that they will not be associated with Christ. For whatever reason. Maybe because Jesus isn't very politically correct. Maybe because Christians are so despised in this world. Maybe because Jesus was so narrow in saying that there's only one way to heaven. Now, in that, if someone says that, then here he doesn't mince his words. He says, if they're ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of them. Christianity is meant to be led, uh, lived out loud. It's meant to be lived publicly. Billy Graham always said, every man that Jesus called, he called publicly. The story of an older man who had been going to church for years and then towards the end of his life he got to the point where his eyes were failing him, his ears were ringing and he really couldn't get anything out of church anymore couldn't hear the music, couldn't hear the message and yet every single Sunday morning he was still in church and when asked why afterwards he said well I still want everyone to know what side I'm on making a stand I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What about you this morning? Is that a challenge for you? It is for me. So I don't want you to think I'm, you know, beating up on you and not being challenged myself. All of these things that Jesus talks about in terms of true discipleship, which is not going to church or raising your hands in church, it's not that. All of these things I find challenging. But frankly, this one might be the most challenging of them all for me personally to live out loud for Jesus Christ to not be ashamed of who he is and it's getting harder and harder every single day of our lives but I want now I know I do I know what my heart tells me I know what your heart tells you I want the whole world I want my family I want my neighbors to know what side I'm on and I'm not changing sides that I made a decision put a stake in the ground that's it for Jesus Christ. You know, when you sign a document and they hand you a pen and they, you're about to sign your life away to a house or something and they say, you know, put your John Hancock on the line. 
It's a reference to the first signer of the Declaration of Independence, his very, very large and stylish signature that he put on that Declaration of Independence. And many believe that John Hancock did that the way that he did that so that King George would be able to see that without putting on his eyeglasses to make sure that King George knew exactly where he stood. And this morning I would say our challenge is as disciples to make sure our King Jesus knows exactly where we stand, that we stand with him as his disciples amidst this generation that doesn't want to anymore. Let us be the ones that do. He has not returned with the angels yet, which means time is not up yet. There are still unbelievers left, and he can use us to bring those folks someday into glory. Let's pray. Father,